You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Good evening and welcome to Done By Law on 3CR 855am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. It's 6pm and you're here with Ingrid. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we're broadcasting and recording, where we are, that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and to pay my respects to their elders past and present. Tonight, we're looking at the phenomenon of using foreign judges in Pacific states in light of the constitutional crisis currently plaguing the Pacific state of Kiribati, which has sprung from the suspension of a number of foreign judges in recent weeks by the Kiribati government. We'll be looking at the Kiribati crisis and international responses to it, and we'll delve more broadly into the practice of using foreign or non-citizen judges, and whether and how the nationality of the judges on a domestic court matters. We're fortunate tonight to be joined by an expert in this field, Dr. Anna Dejitz. Anna is a postdoctoral fellow in the Laureate Program in Comparative Constitutional Law at Melbourne Law School. She researches comparative constitutional law and judicial studies with a particular focus on the Pacific region. Anna holds a PhD from Melbourne Law School and MA in Human Rights from University College London and a Bachelor of Arts in Law from the Australian National University. She is the author of Foreign Judges in the Pacific and co-editor of the Cambridge Handbook of Foreign Judges on Domestic Courts, a global comparative study of foreign judging. Anne is also a convener of the Constitution Transformation Network at Melbourne Law School and co-editor of the blog of the International Association of Constitutional Law. She previously was a global academic fellow at the Hong Kong University Faculty of Law where she conducted comparative research into foreign judges on domestic courts. Anna, tell us about the current constitutional crisis in Kiribati and the ejection of foreign judges occurring in recent weeks. I mean, what's going on in the region and why is it happening? Yeah, so to just kind of briefly outline what has happened in Kiribati, um, David Lamborn is an Australian citizen, um, but he's kind of lived and worked as a lawyer in Kiribati for many years. So he was appointed a judge in 2018. Um, and when Kiribati closed its borders in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, Justice Lamborn was on the wrong side of the borders, if you like. He was out of the country and he tried to return to the country, but was refused entry. Mm-hmm. Um, and really it came down to this, you know, the government said, you know, we'll let you back in if you sign a contract. 
that retrospectively kind of fixes the term of your judicial appointment at three years, mm. which would mean that he would stop being a judge in mid-2021. Um, and around the same time, the Parliament of Kiribati passed a law that required all judges, new and existing judges, to be appointed on fixed terms. Um, so David Lamborn challenged all of these decisions and that law in the High Court of Kiribati and the court found in his favour it held the legislation invalid. It said that Justice Lamborn held an appointment for an indefinite period of time, so a lifetime appointment, mm -hmm. and that he should be let back into the country. Um, so what followed from that then was that the government um, or the president of Kiribati uh, suspended Justice Lamborn from office and set up a tribunal under the constitution to investigate complaints that he had engaged in misbehaviour. Obviously, Justice Lamborn denies all of these allegations. Um, and when an aspect of this process was challenged in the High Court, the Chief Justice was also suspended and a tribunal set up um, to investigate him. And then, of course, when the matter came before the Court of Appeal, it upheld the High Court's decision and then the three judges of the Court of Appeal were also suspended. Um, and in the meantime, the government has also made attempts to deport Justice Lamborn from Kiribati, even though the Court of Appeal has issued um, injunctions to prevent um, any deportation. So the general view is that, you know, Justice Lamborn has been targeted in this way um, because his wife, uh, Tessie Lamborn, is the leader of the opposition. Mm. Um, and in this political dispute, you know, the whole judiciary has become collateral damage. Mm. On its part, the, the government says that, you know, you never intended to appoint Justice Lamborn for life, you know, that all judges in Kiribati are appointed on a fixed term. This was a mistake that should be corrected and it believes the court should have made that correction to the to the appointment, but of course the court held that that's not what the constitution required. So it's kind of trying retrospectively to ensure that Justice Lamborn's appointment is for a fixed term only. Um, and of course you can see the problems that are arising. You know, you've got a concern about the independence of the judiciary um, and performance of its functions under the constitution. The executive seems willing to ignore the orders of the court. Mm. Um, and of course, with the suspensions of all these judges, there's no longer a functioning high-level judiciary in Kiribati, which of course affects any person who has a case before the court, including criminal cases. Um, and there's a huge backlog and delay in that already. Um, it also means, of course, there's no recourse or accountability in relation to government decisions and any decisions it might take to resolve all of this um, crisis going forward. And what's the situation when there's no functioning court system? Is it simply all matters and all cases are held in abeyance? It seems to be, yes. So there is uh, a commissioner um, at the High Court um, who kind of can perform some of the functions of a judge, mm -hmm. but of course is just one person and um, has slightly more limited powers than a judge. Um, so I think he will be trying to do the best he can, um, but he is also responsible for court administration as well. So, mm. you know, you've got limited capacity. Um, so yeah, I, as I understand it, all cases are kind of being held over until um, and another judge is appointed or these judicial appointments are being restored. 
So it's obviously having a huge impact on the people of, of Kiribati and, and the actions of the government have been condemned by the United Nations and peak bodies such as the Law Council of Australia, the Australian Bar Association. But what's the significance, Anna, of this international response? Um, I mean, I think it's one of the one of the things we see with foreign judges is that sometimes they can garner international support. Um, and I mean, the Commonwealth, uh, Commonwealth agencies bodies have also, for a long time, been making comments and, and urging the government to respect judicial independence as well. Mm. Um, I think they can be a little bit double-edged. I mean, it draws attention to what's going on in Kiribati, mm. to a wider audience um, here in Australia and abroad. Um, but at the same time, um, we see the government of Kiribati kind of using these statements to say, you know, the international community doesn't understand, <laughs> it's them and us. Um, uh, you know, it can be quite critical and say, you know, don't interfere in our, in our government, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Um, so really, part of the solution is not so much international statements but you know what the people of Kiribati think about this and, and do about it going forward. I know that the uh, opposition um, members of the parliament in opposition are organising kind of community events, kind of town hall meetings and things to inform people about what's happening mm -hmm. and um, get their views about how to resolve this and they've been trying to bring a motion of no confidence in the Parliament as well, so that Parliament actually registers its concern. And I do think that uh, alongside, and perhaps more important than anything international players might say, is, is what's happening in Kiribati um, to hold its own government to account. Mm. And I want to come back to that because I think that's the critical piece here, is the impact on the people of Kiribati and the way um, they want to resolve the situation and their expectations of their judicial system and their government. Um, before I do that, now I understand that this isn't an unprecedented situation with a similar occurrence in 2014 in Nauru involving the ejection of the Magistrate and Chief Justice there who were both Australian citizens. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so in 2014, um, the... Um, the Chief Magistrate, Peter Law, had made some decisions concerning um, the powers of, of one of the ministers um, and uh, the response from the Minister of Immigration was to um, deport him. So he was put on a plane um, and, and forced out of Nauru and then when, um, when the Chief Justice tried to stop, stop that occurrence happening, um, he was also, he, he was actually in Australia at the time, but his visa was cancelled. Um, and he ultimately resigned, just saying it's impossible for me to do my my work from, mm. from abroad. Um, so uh, there's that, that was a precedent in Nauru, I think in 2014, um, uh, East Timor, uh, you know, there was a decision to cancel the visas and remove Portuguese judges from East Timor in 2014 as well. Mm. Um, and there was a case in Vanuatu in the 1990s where the um, uh, immigration um, status of the Chief Justice was also changed, um, which meant he was effectively removed as well. So it's, it's something that... Uh, you know, foreign judges are not citizens, so they don't have a right of entry and stay in the country. So mm -hmm. they are vulnerable to this kind of interference through 
immigration laws um, rather than going through the proper kind of constitutional processes for removal. Mm. And it sounds like it's quite prevalent. I mean, you've referred to um, similar situations in East Timor, Vanuatu, Nauru. What's the prevalence of the use of foreign judges in Pacific countries and why does this occur? So all um, Pacific Island states recruit judges from outside of the jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. um, and the main reason they do this is, I think, because they do not have sufficient numbers of qualified citizens who are willing and able um, to take up judicial appointments. Um, sometimes, too, um, judges are recruited from outside to hear particular cases that you know the current judges can't hear, for example, if there's a conflict of interest or something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, part of the reason is relates to kind of the smallness of the jurisdictions, the availability of qualified citizens, um, and it just seems to be a long-standing tradition that, that you know, Pacific countries have um, used foreign judges in this way. Um, they're not alone. Uh, other countries, predominantly Commonwealth, you know, former British Empire, now Commonwealth countries, mm -hmm. um, do this. So there's examples from Southern Africa, um, the Caribbean is slightly different, um, but still some examples there as well. Um, so in terms of um, how many there are, um, so for my book and my research on this, I just looked at nine Pacific states and mm -hmm. I looked only at Superior Courts. So uh, it's just Fiji, Kiribati, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, Solomon Islands, Tonga, Tuvalu and Vanuatu. Mm -hmm. um, and across all of these states, I found that about three quarters of all the judges are foreign judges. Um, it is a fairly crude measure. I mean, when you're counting judges, it's quite hard to, you know, you've got to classify them first. Mm. But this figure is averaged across the nine states of the region. And it's also based on a headcount of judges. And it doesn't always reflect the fact that, for example, your local judge, a citizen judge, might sit on the court every day of the year, but a foreign judge might just come in for a few weeks and then and then leave again. Mm. Um, it also doesn't reflect the fact that there are kind of different, important differences amongst each of the states. So if we take Kiribati, there's only ever been one Kiribati judge who has served on the Superior Court, um, although there are local magistrates, for example. Um, so in Kiribati, nearly all judges have been foreign judges. But, you know, if you look at Papua New Guinea, which is a much larger state, mm -hmm. um, it has its own universities, it's got its own law schools, um, there's a much higher proportion of local judges and only a handful of foreign judges. So you can see some differences in the degree of localisation um, of the courts across the region. Mm. We're going to play a track now and come back to discuss some of these issues in more detail. Now, the track that we've chosen is Isuit, um, which is by the Kiribati artist Elijah Jay, featuring Turin and Rob Wells.
Kiribati track Isaweed by Elijah J featuring Turain and Rob Will. You're listening to Done by Law on 3CR 855 AM, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. And we're here with Anna Jejets discussing the use of foreign judges in the Pacific. And what are some of the positives and negatives of this practice um, that you sort of ascertain from your research? Um, I've read that there's some comfort at times in having perceived independence of foreign judges in states that might be very small um, versus, for example, the lack of familiarity that foreign judges might have with um, national laws and the people that they're presiding over, um, which was obviously a negative. Are these the sorts of positives and negatives that you've seen in your research um, from the use of foreign judges? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the main positive is that it permits the judicial system to function. I mean, if you don't have sufficient people to staff the court, then bringing them from outside is a solution to a problem of necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, I worry a little bit about the claim that foreign judges bring perceived impartiality and independence. Um, and I worry about it for this reason, which is that although communities are small and yes, people are more likely to know each other, um, local judges, citizen judges in the Pacific um, manage that issue well. Um, you know, they, they recuse themselves from cases where they have connections, they you know make, make it clear to the parties that they are independent and impartial. And I do worry that if you say, it's a small community, you must have a foreign judge because only a foreign judge can be independent in that way, um, that you are somehow reflecting badly on local judges mm. who do very good work. Um, so I worry about that kind of claim um, and I would prefer to put it uh, on a kind of more narrow basis, which is that, of course, if your local judge or the current judge sitting in whichever Pacific state, you know, cannot hear a particular case, for example, or even a particular kind of case, then absolutely bring in a foreign judge who is not connected in any way to the to the matter at hand and let them hear that case mm. um, because it's a kind of a great resource to have. Um, and we see similar things happen in Australia. So sometimes um, on a particular state court, if there's an issue that the judges of of you know, Western Australia can't hear, they'll bring a judge in from New South Wales and it's a similar kind of situation that happens there. Mm-hmm. So I think they're kind of the positives. Um, the point you make about knowledge is, 
is a really important one, I think. And again, foreign judges kind of bring bring a positive and a negative um, at the same time, potentially. I think the positive is that they bring can bring, you know, well, they bring expert knowledge of their own legal system and the common law, and um, that can be an asset, you know, that can help the court to decide cases. It can help to look to other countries, see how things are done, and and, and you know, develop the law in the Pacific country. Mm. Um, the potential negative, of course, is that they don't always understand. Um, well, they're not as familiar, if you like, with both the law of the Pacific state, um, but also the social context in which it operates. Mm. Um, and it just means that foreign judges are in quite a difficult position, potentially, um, where they're asked to decide issues um, and need to hear evidence about matters that they may not be as familiar with as perhaps a local judge. Um, and there are ways that foreign judges deal with that. Um, that I've seen in my research. So for example, um, they might call expert evidence, they might be quite deferential to a local judge deciding a case in the court below, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so there are ways that it can be dealt with, but I think it is a concern, um, yeah. And it's a concern we faced in Australia too, isn't it? I mean, the makeup of the judiciary is something that we've struggled with. Um, even in Australia, we face long-term criticism for being, you know, pale, stale, and male, and underrepresented in terms of women, people of colour, and other diverse groups that truly reflect the population that we live in. Um, is this concern even more heightened in countries where, what I understand to be predominantly white male foreign judges, are dominating the the appeal courts and might not in any way reflect the people appearing before them? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, um, as you say, you know, in, in all countries, we've seen increasing concern about um, the reflectiveness or the degree to which the judiciary represents the people in the sense of reflecting the people that they serve. Um, and so you get those calls for more gender balance or the representation of minorities mm. um, in the judiciary. So where you have foreign judges um, on the bench, this element of representation seems to be even more distant from the community. Um, and here I think is where some of the uh, colonial overtones become apparent. So mm -hmm. in colonial times, it was not just the judges who were brought in from outside, but the whole administration of government. Mm -hmm. And of course, the difference here is that foreign judges um, are appointed by governments of independent states um, not by a colonial administration, but the demographics kind of tell a little bit of a different story there. Um, they are predominantly white and male. Um, so over the last 20 years, only 16 of the over 200 foreign judges serving in the region have been women. Mm. Um, there are some uh, judges who are not white. Um, we see some... I think diversification in the countries from which foreign judges are recruited. Most are and you know have been and still are recruited from New Zealand, Australia and the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and often, you know, they're recruited from the legal profession and the judiciary itself. So you're seeing, you know, <laughs> the the kind of demographic that's already represented in, in the legal profession and the judiciary, which is also doesn't necessarily reflect even the communities of Australia and New Zealand and the UK. Mm. You know, we see that transferred over into the Pacific. 
um, there have been some changes. So there's uh, quite a high number of Sri Lankan judges who are serving in Fiji. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some judges from common law jurisdictions in Africa and Asia who are now serving in the Pacific and have done for many years. Um, and I think too there's also a significant number of Pacific Islander judges who, you know, in addition to serving in their home state, serve as judges elsewhere in the region. Mm. Um, and I think that's uh, important. Um, it kind of counters some of that colonial um, perception, that colonial overtones mm. um, about um, you get when you're, you've got a bench of you know, mainly white judges. Yes, and as I understand it, many of these legal systems are pluralist as well. So are there foreign judges who are tasked with, for example, deploying Indigenous customary laws? Is that something that occurs in places um, in the Pacific? Yeah, so definitely. So um, one of the, I mean, each Pacific nation is slightly different, but in all contexts, customary law operates in practice mm-hmm. um, and in many it's also a recognised source of law um, and so uh, to differing degrees and in different ways um, the, the you know the formal courts if you like um, have to deal with um, indigenous customary law either alongside the common law and the statute um, or just as part of the social context in which law operates um, and I think that that obviously can be a challenge in that um, it's distinctive, you know, it's based on Indigenous values and norms, which is kind of a very different uh, basis uh, to Western legal systems. Um, and um, it's not always a feature of the legal systems that judges are from. So, um, you know, Australia has legal pluralism um, in the sense that, you know, Indigenous peoples do have their own custom and law, but it's not recognised in the same way um, that legal pluralism is recognised in uh, Pacific Island countries. So um, there is quite a bit of learning and adjustment that judges need to do, um, even to kind of work out what their role is in a, in a legal pluralist system. Mm. And I do think that um, Pacific, it seems, you know, that this is a long-standing practice and it seems that largely Pacific Island communities and governments, you know, accept and value having foreign judges. Mm. Um, But the times at which it's become the most controversial um, tend to be times when foreign judges have had to rule in some way um, on Indigenous customs and its relationship to other kinds of laws. Mm. Um, and you can see that why that might be very sensitive. Um, Anna, thank you so much for sharing your um, knowledge and your research and your experience in this area with us. We've been very fortunate to have you on the show um, and we hope to have you back on a future show to talk about this issue again. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks, Anna. All the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and touring Australia for the very first time is folk duo Watch House, formerly known as Mandolin Orange. 
From coffee houses to major festivals, Watch House has played it all with their heavenly harmonies, songs and music. Watch House plays the Melbourne Recital Centre 11th of October with support from the wonderful Charm of Finches. Also playing at Out on the Weekend at Seaworks in Williamstown 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. Brave men fall with the battle cry Tears fill the eyes of their loved ones and their brothers gone. So it went Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. You've been listening to Done By Law on 3CR 855 AM, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. Thank you so much to Dr. Anna Jejets for joining us tonight to talk about the use of foreign judges in the Pacific. Stay tuned for Voices of West Papua coming up next. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.